one of the things that, oh, I was going to, we'll get into tonight is, you know, when people leave the church, so before I preach a pre-sermon, I'll just get into it, because I think we'll cover it in the verses, but uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up, we're ready for Ezra uh, chapter 3 tonight, so this is a big no-no for public speaking, you don't eat pizza before you before you speak publicly. So if I pause for a minute or something weird, that's the pizza talking. But I was hungry, so I couldn't resist, so I ate some pizza. All right, just really quickly to catch us up to speed where we are in Ezra chapter 3. Um, the, the nation of Israel has gone into Babylonian captivity, the two southern tribes of Judah. The, the ten northern tribes, which will come up in Bible study today, they were, they were previously carried off into captivity. The ten northern tribes of Israel never had a good king. And one of the things that you study through your, your Old Testament biblical history is, is a line and succession of kings in Israel. And, and, and what you see is they would have a good king, and the nation would be prosperous, and they would be following the Lord, and they would have a bad king, and, and the things would turn, and a good king, and a bad king. And, and you see this, but in the northern ten tribes, they never had a good king. They never had a king that followed the Lord. They careened off into... Um, idolatry and, and, and pagan worship and all these things much faster than the tribes in the, in the southern part. And as a result, they were also carried away into captivity and, and an Assyrian, um, the Assyrians took them captive and the Assyrians assimilated and we'll get into that a little bit later. But the, the two southern tribes didn't go into captivity at that time. They remained in the Jerusalem, Judea area until later and they were judged by the Lord and the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and they went into 70 years of captivity where Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. We get the wonderful life of Daniel. And then Daniel was reading in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 23 where Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be in this Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And he knew the time was coming and, and that they would come out of this captivity. And then under Ezra and Nehemiah, which was actually another 70 years later after Daniel, they began Aliyah. And they began to go back to, to Jerusalem. Now, 42,000 um, in the first wave, and then another 7,000 in that thing. About 49,700, somewhere close to there. A little roughly 50,000 um, had went back to Jerusalem and to Israel. But, you know, four times that amount stayed in Babylon because they had built houses and made lives there. And they didn't go back. And they didn't come back um, as they were called and they were led. But, but those that God called... And those that, that responded to the call of God, they went back, and when they got to Jerusalem, there was, there was nothing. Everything that they had built there, everything that was there in their glory day, um, the temple that Solomon built. The temple that Solomon built was the eighth wonder of the world, and it was, it was built and spared no expense, and was covered in gold inside and out. And um, it, was, it was a phenomenal sight of the temple that Solomon built. The Bible says that Solomon had so much silver and gold that he stopped counting it. Any of you guys have so much money that you just stopped counting it? <laughs> if you do, can I borrow like 50 cents? Um, he had so much they, that Israel was very prosperous in the temple and all that destroyed years later um, in, this, in this time we are in our Bible. And they, so they go back and there's nothing there in Jerusalem. And God gives a decree through a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, remember, we studied last week, showed you the Trump Cyrus coin. Cyrus is this king. Now, um, you know, it's actually relevant every week. I, I'm sorry, can we get the, um, 
Daniel piece statue up, the Nebuchadnezzar statue with the preceding things. So these, these kingdoms that Daniel prophesied, as we talked about, Nebuchadnezzar, the top, the head of gold, then you have the breast and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was under the Medo-Persian Empire and his successive kings, the, the Medes and the Persians kind of teamed together. Eventually, as time went on, the Persian part of this um, partnership grew to be the strength and um, the Persian Empire takes over. And these kings are Persian kings, but they're ruling from Babylon because Babylon is the greatest city in the world that was ever built. Um, it's in modern-day Iraq today. Um, Saddam Hussein was fascinated with um, having the ruler, the leader of, of the country of Iraq that, that hosted um, traditional and historical Babylon, and so he preserved the area. He actually at times would um, claim to be Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. I guess he forgot the part about Nebuchadnezzar eating grass like an ox and his nails growing over his head, and but he thought he was King Nebi. And, um, so where we are in our study, we're right there between 539 and 331 B.C. We're in, we're, we're in Ezra, and they went back in waves. And when um, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and Israel, he also did that in three waves. The first wave, they just took people and gold and artifacts. The second wave, they came back. They took more people. They took more things. And the third wave, the people continued to be rebellious in Israel and not follow the new rules and the new laws. And so Nebuchadnezzar completely sacked Jerusalem, destroyed everything, leveled the temple, destroyed the walls, and, and there was nothing left. And so when Ezra and this group of 50,000 go back, they go back with this letter from King, King Cyrus to begin to rebuild. And then um, they're, they're going to rebuild the temple and um, under Zerubbabel and Ezra. Ezra is um, kind of the, uh, Zerubbabel is the, the kind of the, the builder and he's going to do a lot of the building. Ezra is the priest. And, and he's going to do the restoring of the spiritual aspects, the sacrifices, the services, and rebuild those. And then um, Nehemiah, who's going to come later, about 70 years later, when the king switches from who it is now, Cyrus, to a king by the name of Artaxerxes Longimanus, who is going to give the decree to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. Now, why is that one super important in our Bible study? Because that is the one that marks Daniel chapter 9 from the, the command to go forth and rebuild um, the walls until Messiah the Prince shall be um, the, the 62 plus 9 years. And that marks that prophecy in Daniel from the Artaxerxes Longimanus, who's going to be this Persian king in Babylon, who's going to let Nehemiah 70 years hence go back and begin to rebuild the wall. Now there's four decrees. Um, different Bible scholars will, will disagree on which decree is marked in Daniel chapter 9, but it's very specific because 173,460 days, exactly to the day, um, is, the, is where Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey that marks the day that Daniel prophesied. So they played with those numbers and those dates and looked at the different um, decrees that have gone and I think the majority leaning, that's kind of where I stand and what I teach is that, and it doesn't matter really honestly too much to get it, you know, these things aren't like your salvation, but they're fun, they're Bible stuff. And it's good to know we have a Bible that's this accurate and this this correct. But it, the, the Artaxerxes Longimanus of Nehemiah, and, and the reason why that one is because it's specific about the wall, and Nehemiah went back to build the wall, and then if you take that date um, in history and you add those um, 62 years, it comes exactly to April 
2nd, AD 32, the day that Jesus, April 6th, AD 32, the day that um, Jesus entered triumphantly on a donkey. So today we're going to see the battles of, of moving forward spiritually. And so kind of the theme to what we'll see is that when you, when you make progress for the Lord, you're going to face spiritual battles. You're going you're gonna to face opposition. Our worship leader back home, he was a young kid, and he had all these, like, Fandango-like sayings when he, was, when he was leading worship. And I wish I could remember them all. He was pretty good, but he would always say, you know, he would say things like, if you don't have opposition, you better check your position. And he <coughs> – on and on and on and on. I should have I wrote them all down. They're, they preach pretty well. I think it was pretty cool. But anyways, that's the truth. If you don't have opposition, check your position, right? If you're, if you're not knocking on the gates of hell, if you're not doing something to build the kingdom of God – then Satan's not worried about you. You're not going to, he's not going to persevere. You're not going to face certain opposition. You know, I I know certain religious groups and um, they, they, it seems like they they don't face a lot of attacks and a lot of hardships. And you're like, it seems like they live a pretty easy, good life, blessed life. Why is that? Well, they're not kicking on the gates of hell. They're not making any progress. The last thing Satan wants to do, you know, Satan's got a million ways to get you to hell. And if, and if it's working and, and, and he doesn't need to disrupt it, the last thing he needs to do is make you a drug addict. Become a drug addict, you might look up to God for help to get out of that. He'll keep you successful and no trouble. And so if you're, if you're kicking on the gates of hell and whenever there's spiritual growth, there's going to be spiritual opposition. That's just a part of life. Now, that's where the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. You know, that's where the prosperity gospel leads so many people and destroys so many faiths is that God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy all the time. That because then when you opposition, you know, not about these things preachers and pastors, you know, I've heard this a million times, you know, and I'll just call him by name because I remember it, but it's a guy by the name of Jesse Duplantis, and I was keen on this guy because he was from Louisiana, and my, my dad's from Louisiana, and so he spoke with a Louisiana accent, and, you know, these kind of, I don't know how these guys do it, honestly, it's hard enough to walk through the Word of God and, and have a message, but to have to come up with something week after week after week that's creative and that's that's way harder than just teaching the Bible. It's, it's so much better. It's so much easier just to teach the Bible, man. But anyways, you know, uh, story about Jesse Duplantis and this. Now oh, I forgot. It was a story. I forgot what the story was. These prosperity. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. I know what it is. So this is the type of, of thing they, that he would say. He would say, I was having a conversation with the Lord the other day. And he said, I got on the elevator, and the Lord said to me, Jesse, and I said, yes, Lord. And he said, Jesse, what are you doing on this elevator? And I said, Lord, I just am getting away from that. And he said, Jesse, I didn't tell you to get on this elevator. And, and he goes on and on, back and forth, about this conversation he's having with God. And it's cool, you know, like, whoa. But, and he thinks, he thinks, and it's effective. He thinks that, you know, it's impressing his audience and that, you know, but what is it doing? It's not, it's not impressing his audience. It's making his audience feel dumb. It's making his audience feel like, well, how come God doesn't talk to me that way? Why, why don't, what's wrong with me? You have all this money, you have all this stuff, God talks to you like that when you get in the elevator? You know, like, and, and God doesn't talk to me that way, it, you know, and it's just, it's not, it's not, what, it's not right. And then this prosperity gospel, when your dog dies, and, and, and everything that God does is supposed to be a blessing, how do you do on, how do you do on that day? But, but if you know there's opposition, you know there's trials in this life, you know this life is not intended to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and, and not against happy, healthy, wealthy, because I think God will give, can give you all of those things. But, but that's not God's intention for you. Let's take marriage, for example. God, you're, you're supposed to be happy in your marriage, okay? Unless you're married to a woman. Sorry, I'm just kidding. Scratch, go back. I was just kidding. I couldn't resist. I should have resisted. Unless you're married to a man. I should say that, okay? No, 
You're supposed to be happy in your marriage. Let's go back to that scene. You're supposed to be happy in your marriage. God's design, and God, not God's design, but God's will, God's hope for you is to find joy, right? But, but God's design of marriage is not to make you happy. God's design of marriage is to make you holy. It's to make you more like Jesus. You know, God, God says in the Bible two things about marriage. And, and, it, and, and when things are really important, he doesn't give us. What's funny is you think you're like raising kids, for example. It seems like there should be chapters and books in the Bible about how to raise kids. There's not. Marriage is another one. It seems like there should be chapters and whole books dedicated to rules and all these things that could to help us have a good married life. There's not. And, and, and in those areas in your Bible when it's, it's very important salvation, and there's a lot about salvation, but salvation, the rules are very simple. Those important things, God keeps those simple so we, we can't, you know, get them confused. But really in marriage, God says for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and for a wife to see that she respects her husband. It's a basic skinny of marriage in God's, God's economy. Husbands love, or husbands love and wives respect. And then God creates a woman who, who is um, in the image of God and has some of God's strengths, and a man who's in the image of God and has some of God's strengths. And, and God doesn't have any weaknesses, but as humans, we have, we have strengths and weaknesses. But women are created to naturally love. You know, you put two women together in a room, and, and what's the first thing they do? They start complimenting each other. Oh, you're so cute. Oh, my gosh, you got your nails done. Where did you get those? And they love each other, and they, you put two chairs in a room, and you put two women in the, in the room. They're going to turn the chairs face-to-face, and they're going to face face-to-face. They're going to talk. They're going to compliment each other. Two guys walk in a room. Hey, you bum, you're still driving that old car. Man, them two tennis shoes are tired, man. Like, you stink, you know. And we won't disrespect each other, but we'll tease each other. And girls like, I can't believe you say that to your friend and he doesn't get mad. And, you know, but it's, it's a different economy. Two guys go on a hunting trip. And we sit shoulder to shoulder for a whole week. And we shoot things and we kill things and we grunt. And we have the most amazing time of our life. And then we get home and our wife says, oh, you were hunting with John for a whole week. And like, yeah, it was awesome. We killed, killed things. We shot things. We blew this planet right up. We did all this stuff, you know. And, and, and your wife says, well, how, how's John's wife? Yeah. John's married? How's John's kids? John has kids? You don't know nothing about John or his wife or his kids. You didn't ask him that. You know, you might have asked him where he wants to eat or, you know, and, and you had a great time. And you, two girls go away for a week. They're going to sit face to face. And when they come home, they are going to know absolutely everything about their girlfriends, brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, dogs, mailman's milkman whatever they're going to know it all and, and so we we put these two things together and god says that we have to become one the bible says the two become one flesh and we have wonderful relationships in life all over the place children fathers um, and sons brothers a mother and a daughter but only of, of a husband and wife does the bible say that the two become one flesh and so you take these two things that that are naturally different and what we do in marriage is we we, we combat right these differences and, and a wife um, by sin nature is constantly trying to make her husband respond like her girlfriends do and be a woman. And a man is constantly trying to make his wife respond like his buddies do and become a man. And, but ultimately, I'm telling you, ladies, you don't want to be married to a woman, and men, you don't want to be married to your friend. And, and so we, we recognize these differences that God made us. And so God made women in a love culture. They understand love. It's naturally who they are. Men, we understand respect. That's who we are as men. Like, as a man, you know respect, right? If, if, if I can tease you about your car or whatever, we're having fun, you throw them back and forth. I start talking about your mama, then we're going to have to go outside and roll around on the ground and prove who's tougher because you just disrespected me. That's, that's, that's men culture. We understand that culture. That's respect. But my wife, and I understand, is created by God to live in a respect culture. My wife has been created by God, not by mistake, men and women, 
You know, don't think your husband in the way they are is a mistake. God designed them that way, okay? So a woman is naturally loving, and it bothers me as a man. I, don't, I want her to react like my buddy, you know, I, I don't, and, and vice versa, right? So here's the question. Why, it, it, it's two magnets facing the opposite way that God wants us to put together, and they naturally repel. So why, why, does, why does God do that? Why, why, do, why doesn't God make me naturally understand love if that's what my wife needs to fulfill her needs and, and, and to, to be the godly husband? And if a woman needs, um, if, if a man needs respect, why doesn't he create women with this natural respect culture? And then things will work better. These magnets will fit. She understands respect. That's what I need. I understand love. That's what she needs. And God did it opposite. Did he blow it? Like Jesus, the night he prayed all night for the 12 disciples? Either he blew that prayer or that's what he prayed for. Those guys are a bunch of lugheads, you know? Peter, bull in a china closet. And no, Jesus didn't, God didn't blow it by design. The reason is because in order to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I have to become more Christ-like. I have to rely on God. I have to rely on the Holy Spirit. I have to be full of the Holy Spirit. I have to be close to the Holy Spirit. In order for my wife to show me the respect that I need for me to thrive, then she has to be filled with the Holy Spirit. She has to die to herself. She has to become more Christ-like. So the happiness is included, but the ultimate design of marriage is to make us more like Jesus, to make us more holy. And so um, let's look at our lives. That all fits. You know what I do is I, Lydia's always like, just read one verse and then say all that stuff, and it'll seem like you're teaching the Bible. And I'm like, it's all in what I'm teaching tonight. It all kind of, it's all rolling around in my brain. It's all in what I'm teaching today, but so... Bear with me. All right, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Delzadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose, and they did what? They built the altar of God, of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. So we're calling this the... The, the return to Jerusalem. The, actually, it's like, it's almost as if you're backslidden and you're coming back to God as they come back. And when they come back to Jerusalem, what is the first thing that, that they do? The first place that they go? They go to the altar. And they build the altar and they begin to offer sacrifices on the altar. Now you have to picture this in your mind. Imagine the, the destruction of the temple where it's at. And now in the middle of it, they don't build a wall, they don't build a building, they don't build what we're sitting in today. It's going to become like what we're sitting in today, some kind of building that's going to have a stage and an altar and, and a place of worship. But they don't build any of those things. They don't set up chairs. They, they build an altar on the stage to be no walls. So you're walking from, you know, however far away and you can now see the temple and you see this altar in the temple and something's burning on it and the smoke is rising up. And so the very first thing they build is the altar. And so that, that represents, again, our relationship with Jesus, right? The most central thing to our faith is our relationship with Jesus. And so here, as we come back, you know, um, Jesus said in, in, in Revelation in chapter 2 to those that were backslidden, to remember where you have come from and return to your first love and do those things that you did at the first. And so they come back, and, and, and initially it's this, this relationship with God that has to be restored first. Now, there's other furnishings, other things in our Christian walk, but... None of that is going to be fixed unless we first fix our relationship with Jesus. That's where it all starts. Jesus is the bullseye, and we have to aim for the bullseye in, in order to, to get the rest. You know, we have, again, we have people leave the church, or I run into people from time to time in town who are backslidden or who 
um, are not walking with the Lord. When people leave, it, it always hurts. Whether, you know, Rick's not mad at me and he's leaving. And yesterday was somebody who was mad at me and left. And, you know, we, we get it all in the church. And every time. You know, it's not my first rodeo. I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, for thankfully for 17 years, I watched somebody hate my pastor and not me when they left. And then I became the pastor and now I deal with it. But you know what? I, sometimes I, I look at every situation in the mirror. There's, there's a little truth in every criticism. And, and I want to be responsible and I want to do better next time. If that's the case, I want to repent. I want to be right by the Lord. And somebody leaves or there's a problem and somebody gets mad. But I, I'll be honest, um, you know, a, a lot of times, not every time. Maybe there's sometimes there's something that I, I did or said and I could have done it a little better, a little better tact. And, and, and I do have some responsibility in that. But, you know, we have people that leave and leave the church. It hurts every time, even though you know it and you're like, I've seen so many people do this. I should be used to it by now. But you don't. It still bothers you. You know, you still carry, carry responsibility and love of people when they get upset and leave. But, um, you know, it's an excuse. You know, we had a situation and um, try to be careful. But the, the person had come to church, was involved, and um, then just stopped coming and <clears throat> stopped seeing them. And, you know, it takes a while, too. It's like, you know, somebody's not here for a week. You guys aren't here for a week. I don't call you. How can your pastor call you? Where were you at a church last week? You know, and. It takes a little bit. You know, I'll give you grace. Maybe you're gone for a couple of weeks. you got something going on. Hey, we're here for you when you want to come back, you know. And, and sometimes by the time somebody's been gone, they go, oh, nobody called me. I was gone for two weeks and nobody called me. Well, you know, but the opposite is true. And I don't keep roll and roster and, you know, remember everybody who's here and who's not here. And sometimes people get hurt on that. But that's not my responsibility. Those, those things I can't wear. So this, this, this individual, this is just an example. I don't even need to give the details of a real situation because it's the same situation over and over again. But just gone, and, and I'll reach out to them when I realize they're gone, or somebody will ask me about them, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while, and when I get that reminder, I say, oh, yeah, you're right, I don't remember seeing them for a while, I'll reach out, I'll call them, I'll text them, whatever, just reach out to them, and you know, say, do you want to go to lunch, do you want to talk about something, and, um, you know, and I, I used to, before, you know, it was like, it, when it bothered me a little bit more, I would make these announcements in church, like, you know, that, and, and, and I don't know, I got to the point, I kind of, I did, I did get hardened a little bit, or not hardened, but I think maybe matured a little bit, and I had a pastor tell me that I, I don't chase people down that leave and don't call me. They don't talk to me first and they leave the church, I'm not going to chase them down. I don't call them, I don't, if they, if they have the decency to come and say, hey, this is what's going on, I got a problem with this, that's why I'm leaving, that's a different situation. But if they just disappear and they don't talk to me, I, I stop chasing people down. And I kind of adopted that policy a little bit, but, a little bit, but you know, I just have people that I love, and I don't know what's going on, I call them, reach out, and so the person's gone, and now they're not here for a year. And then they show up out of the blue. That's great, and I do my best. And unfortunately, you know what? Sometimes we as a church, um, you guys as a church, we as a church, <laughs> say some pretty dumb things to people. You know, and not, not intentionally, but there's just a little, and, and I don't know who that person is, but, you know, this person comes, and it's like, oh, hey, stranger, oh, where have you been? Oh, did you switch churches? And they may be teasing or stuff. And this person's probably in a position in, in their heart where they, they can't handle those things. And so they take them personally. And, and, and it's hard to come back. Like, you're embarrassed. You have, you, it's a church family. You've been here for a while. Everybody knows you. Then you don't show up for six months. And you show up out of the blue. And, and people say a bunch of things to you that, you know, are, are hard for you to take. You know, and so I encourage it. If you do see somebody who hasn't been in church in a while, just be sensitive to that. And just say, hey, welcome. Glad to see you, man. What's going on? You know, and say, oh, hey, stranger, where you been? Are you a sinner now? You don't go to church anymore? You go to the bar instead? Or why'd you leave? Did you get mad at the pastor? <laughs> Whatever, you know, like, just have a little sensitivity. But anyway, so this person comes back, and, and I try to do, you know, and I'm walking on eggshells, to be honest, but I'm trying my best to be loving and, like, not to say the wrong thing and just like, hey, you know, what's going on? Welcome back. How you been? And, you know, we're always here. You're welcome. Whatever, you know, hey, try to keep it as normal as possible. And 
And then disappear. Person's gone. Don't see them again ever. And then like a year later, you know why they left? They're, you know, they're around town telling everybody they left because they, they, they were involved in some ministries here. And I took their ministries away from them and gave them to other people. <laughs> so, yeah, just that kind of, but that's just one example. There's lots of examples. And, and this is, you know, whatever, you know, on and on and on and on. Like, you can't give your ministry to somebody else. You stopped showing up. You didn't call me. You didn't talk to me. We're here for six months. Uh, somebody's got to teach the kids while you're gone. We had a different Sunday school teacher. And I didn't know you were coming back when you came back, and we didn't roll out the red carpet for you. I'm sorry. Like, but, you know, I, I don't want to hide behind this, but I'm not responsible for you. I'm not responsible for your faith. I'm not going to be there the day you're standing before Jesus. Guess who's not else going to be there? Anybody. Nobody that's hurt you. You know, there's some terrible, terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus by, by, by leaders. Don't put a leader on a pedestal. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm going to let you down one day. You know, and, and, and the thing is, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, when the people that are around you that, that, that let you down or Christ followers who fall into moral sin and, and fall into problems, if your eyes are on Jesus, you won't, you won't rock your faith. And, and the Bible says that, that for leadership and, and for the pastoral staff especially, that there is a higher accountability because of that reason. And it does. We can't, we can't help but affect. But it says it gives the enemies of God the occasion of blasphemy. And that's what happens when we follow scriptures. It gives the enemies of God. Oh, look at these guys. They're Christians. And your pastor just, you know, it's on TV. He's got hookers. And he's in a jacuzzi with two girls that are not his wife. And they're naked. And all the time. That's, that's, not, that's very common. All the time. Tons and tons of stories. Big churches. Big pastors. Calvary Chapel, not Calvary Chapel. Biggest Calvary Chapel in the world. Cal- Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. One of the best, best um, Bible speakers I've ever heard in my life. Hands down. I mean, I'm, I'm at conferences with Pastor Chuck, John Corson, Raul Reese, Skip Heisick, best Bible teachers in the world. And this guy's blowing doors on them every time. So good. Funny. And deep. Just gets caught in this nasty sex scandal and um, all this wild stuff. Church church in Florida, 10,000 people on a Wednesday night. That's the church I told you about where the guy from here went to go and asked if he could meet the pastor. And the elder took him down the hall to a six-foot cardboard cut out of the pastor. And he said, that's the closest you'll ever get to the pastor. But big church, too. I'm not judging you. 10,000 people on a Wednesday night. One of the largest churches in America and the pastor in this wild scandal, you know. But... Um, People's faith get rocked, and people want to walk away from the Lord, and that's terrible. And that th- those people are responsible for their their actions, and when they stand before Jesus by themselves, they're going to give account to that. So listen, if you're in that church, and for that reason you stop walking with Jesus or you stop going to church, when you stand before Jesus, is that pastor going to be standing next to you as your excuse? You don't have an excuse. Jesus died on a cross for you. And, how, you, you you got nothing else. I died on a cross for you. I shed my blood for you. Oh, so you're pastor, whatever. So you didn't get your job back. Teaching the third grader. <laughs> I'm being out of the hard, ain't I? <laughs> I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying not to let the flesh. I'm teaching truth, but I'm trying not to get the flesh too much, all right? So, but listen, you're without excuse. And ultimately, here's the bottom line. Those folks, um, they, they need excuses. Okay, when you walk away from the Lord, because what I find is this, if, 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 they, if they talk to me and said, hey, whatever, and then they leave, 
and their heart is still to serve the Lord, then they're going to go somewhere else. They're going to find a place to plug in and serve the Lord. That's, that's great. Do that. If I upset you, go find somewhere to serve the Lord and, and, and serve the Lord. But that's not what happens. They just stop serving the Lord. Next thing you know, it's at the, you know, hearing stories, they're, they're hanging out at the bars all the time. They're getting drunk. Or this is going on. Or so-and-so has seen them here doing this. And, you know, and the countenance was down. Their eyes are black. There's something's going on. They're not right. You know, like, and, 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 and well, why aren't you going to church anymore? Oh, because I like to smoke dope and drink. They're not going to tell you that. Because the pastor hurt my feelings. Gave my jobs away. Kicked me out. Yeah, like, you have a responsibility before the Lord that's on your own. It's not on any leadership or any team. And that leadership and that team, they do. They're going to stand before God. And they're going to give account if they did wrong. And they, you know, and as a shepherd, if you, if you beat sheep or you don't take care of sheep or you don't have good, you know, well-fed, well-fed sheep, well-taken-care-of sheep, I'll be responsible for that. The pastor will be responsible for those things. But the individuals, unfortunately, and I always remind people this. Look, the greatest um, uh, moral failure in in Christendom and human history was committed by a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. And how many of the other 11 disciples fell and had their faith rocked when, the, when, when Judas Iscariot fell in their moral failure? Not a one of them. Why did the 11 disciples not even hit a speed bump? Because their eyes were on Jesus. Because they kept their eyes on Jesus. You know, And that's so important. I think that's very important here in, um, you know, in Utah land with our neighbors is because there is a hierarchy that, that is dangerous, and, and, I, and I'm always careful that there's no hierarchy here, that we're, we're all invited into the, into the kingdom of God. We're all invited into the Holy of Holies, that you have access to Jesus, and you don't need anybody to be between you and Jesus and between you and the Holy of Holies, that you are invited in to be welcomed into the Holy of Holies, and that Jesus loves you and he cares for you, and you have the word of God before you. And if somebody who you look up to as a Christian leader does something wonky, does that change one jot or tittle in the Word of God that sits on your lap? It doesn't. It doesn't. All right, I'm done. So these folks are coming back. They're, they're backslidden. They're prodigal in a way, right? They're coming back. We're, we're looking at them that way. And as they come back, they build the altar again. And, and so, again, for these people, the, the, all that was to say this. They, they don't have a problem with the church. They have a problem with Jesus, right? That's ultimately what they have to get right. Because if they got right with Jesus and got together with Jesus, Jesus may send them to another place to serve, another church, maybe come back, you know. And the thing is, when we do have people, and I don't care how mad at you, mad at me when when you leave. And again, we've we've went down this road a million times. Um, you're always welcome back. We'll smooth things over. We'll work things out. Um, they're they're forgiven. It's water under the bridge. And we've had tons of people in that situation. And I'm I'm very proud of the fact that we have some people in our church today that at one point. We didn't see eye to eye. We worked it out, and we sat down, and we talked, and, and they're still here, and we love each other, and, and we're moving forward. And so that's, you know, I'll never hold a grudge on, on anything that, you know, that happens on this in this church. Unless you mess with my wife, then I'll shoot you in the face. Verse 3 says, Though fear had come upon them, because the people of those countries, they set the altar on its faces, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. So they're, they're, they're continuing these offerings. And they also kept the feast of the tabernacle, as it is written. They offered them daily burnt offerings in the number required of ordinances for each day. We're never going to finish tonight. Hey, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 real quick. One more, one more point on that. Revelation 12. 
Verse 11. Listen really quickly. On, on the, the Bible's prescription for coming to Jesus, for, for walking with Jesus, the, way we, the, the direction we looked at verse 11 on Sunday was that the world has all kinds of different ways that, that you solve your problems, that you get right, that you get zen, that you get, you know, the example I gave on Sunday was a, a person who um, was told as they went through problems, in order to solve these problems, their particular problem was a son who was drug addicted, was to light candles in the house for certain saints, to pray for certain saints, to do certain rituals um, to, to help their son. That's what they were told to do. It's on and on and on. And that's one example. Life has a bunch. There's, there's a new uh, Zen stone place here in Tooele where they sell these stones and gems and they, they each have different powers and you have to hold them and get the evil out of them and then you wear them and you put them around your house and this one protects from evil and this one protects from um, I think the only way that rock is going to protect you from evil is if when the evil walks in you pick it up and you just David it right into their forehead it might work but other than that it's a rock it's a rock that somebody figured out how to charge you $35 for <laughs> and they make it an idol and, and, and so Again, the point being, there's a million different things that Satan says that, that we do. But the Bible tells us, again, how do we come back to Christ? How do we get right? How do we fix things? In Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him. The word him there is Satan. In small h, if you read back a couple verses, this context is specifically, without a doubt, talking about Satan. And they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. First thing. Okay, they came to the altar, and it's by Jesus. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's Jesus who forgives you of your sins. It's Jesus who loves you. It's Jesus who's given you the right to become and to be called the children of God. It's Jesus who, who, who adores you, has adopted you, received you, accepted you, forgave you, beloves you. That's Jesus and the blood of the Lamb and the power of the blood. Your sins have to be forgiven. There's a million different religions out there and, you know, a billion Buddhists and a billion Muslims. And, you know, somebody said, how can all these people be wrong, Pastor? And I said, I don't know, but something has to be done with your sins. You have to have your sins forgiven. And the blood of Jesus Christ forgives your sins. That's number one. Number two, and by the word of their testimony. And again, obviously, I'm going to jump on the word, word there, because it is the word of their testimony, but it includes the word of God. That, that, that Jesus said you have erred because you, you do not know the scriptures. So you can th- say you know Jesus, or you know God, or you have this, or you have that, but you err if you don't have it out of the word of God. And the testimony of what God has done in their lives and it says, and they did not love their lives even to the death. So those three things, the blood of the lamb, the word of God, the word of their testimony, and the third thing being, they did not love their lives. Jesus said that you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. Um, Paul says in Acts 20, 24, that, that he does not count his life dear to me, that he ran his race with endurance, and that none of these things move me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me as I run my race with endurance. Paul says in Acts chapter 20. And all those terrible things as he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And all these things that were coming on him. That if we don't love our lives, we don't see this life as, as number one. And that this, this, this flesh and, and success and money and life and all the things we look at it. That we love not our lives even to the death. That we love Jesus first. And we understand that we live this life for the next. That's a hard pill to swallow. That's a hard pill to live out day to day. Because we have real problems and real bills and real things we have to solve. Acts 20:24, Revelation 12:11, and then the last one, make some notes there, 1 John 1, you guys can go back and read those things, put those things together. Verse 5 says, of chapter 3 says, and 
afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who was willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. I always highlight that in my Bible because I'm a pastor and I want you to tithe here in our church. But I will note this. It's consistent with uh, New Testament giving is that those that the, the word there and the Holy Spirit doesn't exaggerate or miss things here, right? And he says those that were willing gave as the Lord moved on their heart, right? And that's what we preach and teach here about giving is that we want God to move on your heart. We want God to speak to you about what you should be giving, how you should give, and we encourage you to give. We believe in giving. We, believe, we don't believe that giving is necessary so the church can survive. That's not the point of giving, but it's necessary for God raising you as a child of God. He's raising children, and he will bless you, and it's called for. But don't do it unless you're willing, unless God has spoken to your heart. Because if you give out of begrudging or if you think you're buying something, you're throwing your money away. Keep it. Go to McDonald's and buy two Big Macs instead of one. And then when God speaks to your heart, begin to give. In verse 6 it says, And from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So there's no te- there's no, no foundation. There's just a slab maybe where the temple used to be and this altar and the smoke rising um, from the middle of it that the people would have seen. And But they wanted to first, even before they built anything, before they encased, uh, again, the Holy of Holies, which would have had to have been a separate room where the Shekinah glory of God would have resided, where the priest would have been seeing to go back in once a year as he did in the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. And they also, verse 7, gave money to the masons, the carpenters, the food, and food, drink to the oil, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon. So Lebanon is where all the cedars are in the Bible. They're always importing um, these cedars from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So the king had given them the decree to go. And God was in it. And God prophesied through Jeremiah the prophet that they were going to be 70 years and they were to go back. And then God made the providence, and we talked about the providence, and that's such an important um, aspect of who God is in in the Bible, and the providence of God. And and so in God's providence, he puts it on the heart of this pagan king Cyrus to send them back. And God has spoken to them through the prophets. He's using pagan kings. They're supposed to go back. And in verse 8, it says, Now in the second month of the second year, they're coming to the house of God at Israel. Zerubbabel, the son of Shiphiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the brethren the priests, the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. I kind of like that because I was I was 20 years old when I got saved. So I, I got in just in time for the work of the Lord. Not saying that. Either. That's not Bible stuff. So you got saved at 21. God can still use. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Kadamiel with his sons and the sons of Judas, arose one oversee those working on the house of God and the sons of Hadad with their sons, with their brethren, with the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and singing, giving thanks to the Lord. So in verse 11 was the first sing around. See, even see, you guys didn't make that up. Sing around, they, they sang, look at that, verse 11 says they sang responsibly. Go sing around. 
And then in verse 10, look what it's, how did they, what things did they use to worship the Lord in verse 10? Cymbals, trumpets. Does that sound like only a piano and hymns only? Cymbals. You know what? The cymbals are the loudest, most obnoxious thing in the, in the church, right? And a trumpet and a cymbal. If you're not sure what God's prescription is for worship, read Psalm 150. He mentions all the worships, all the, all the instruments there. You know, I don't see the children of Israel, too, leaving Egypt and wandering through the wilderness, two million of them, like, standing like this singing hymns. I think they were rocking out, you know, like they were using all this stuff. And, and this is what you see consistent, right, all the way through the Bible. Here they're, they're clanging cymbals, so God doesn't have a problem with drums. They've always used drums. Um, they're blowing trumpets. They're using stringed instruments. It even says in their apparel. Any of you guys follow that Instagram page, Preachers with Sneakers? It's like, you know, $1,000 sneakers. And and the, the company that makes it, or the company that put it out, I think they're a Christian company, but it is satire, and they are kind of making fun of these guys a little bit, but in, in, in good taste, I think, you know. But they'll, they'll take pictures of these different guys, and when they catch them, like, in a, uh, I don't know, $1,000 pair of shoes or something. The one yesterday, the post yesterday is a pastor, and he's wearing a nine thousand dollar Louis Vuitton jacket <laughs> now again God bless Louis Vuitton he figured out how to charge somebody nine thousand dollars for a jacket and they pay it but yeah there there's a line right like when I first saw that preachers with sneakers um, uh, Instagram page I wanted to compete so I went out and bought some uh, Space Jam Jordan retros and they're like 400 bucks and I rock those from time to time, but I haven't got on preachers and sneakers yet. And I think I got to get to like the thousand dollar shoes before I'll, I'll make the, the, the Instagram page. But anyways, um, all right, here we go. In verse where we at? Eleven. Thank you. Yes. Verse, verse eleven. They sang responsibly. They sang, "For He is good. For He is good. For He is good to me." Any guys ever sing that song in church? When I first got saved, Calvary Chapel, Val Vista, so this is like 95, and our pastor, our worship pastor, this was like the most hip song in, in churches at the time, For He Is Good, but he would sing the same bar, like, you'd be there for like two days, and you'd be, For He Is Good, For He Is Good, and you look at your watch, and like half hour later, you're saying the same words, For He Is this guy would just keep going and going, so I know that song, For He Is Good. For his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord because of the foundations of the house of the Lord. So now they're making some progress in the ha second half of verse 11. The foundations are laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old, old men who had seen the first temple. Everybody say first temple. They wept with a loud voice when the foundations of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. So the old guys who had seen Solomon's temple, when they see the foundation of the new temple, they're just crying. <laughs> what happened to the former glory? And the young people, they had never seen Solomon's temple. They've been in Babylon for the last 70 years. And they're excited. They're stoked. They see the temple going up, and they're, they're hooping and hollering, Woo-hoo! Yeah! Woo! And, and the others are crying. You know, it's, it's funny because the Bible says that there's a prophecy about this, and it says that the, 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 the first temple is great, but the smaller temple, the glory of the smaller temple, temple will be greater. And so what, any, any guess why the, this new temple that Zerubbabel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah build 
The glory of that temple will be better than the, the temple that Solomon built, this, this eighth wonder of the world. The eighth wonder of the world was phenomenal in gold and other things, but this temple is going to surpass it in glory. What's going to happen about 400 years, 450 years later? In that temple, Jesus is going to be dedicated there. Jesus is going to die right next to there. Jesus is going to come. He's going to do ministry in this temple. He's going to overturn the tables in this temple. He's, he's going to do work right here in this temple that they're building. And yeah, it didn't have the splendor of Solomon's temple. But remember, too, um, in the history of your temples, you have the first temple was Solomon's temple. David prepared the things, and Solomon built it. Phenomenal um, site, you know, uh, uh, geogra- uh, whatever. Known wonder to the world. Phenomenal. And then the second temple is, is this one, but we call this Herod's temple. Any idea why we call it Herod's temple? Because later, closer to the time of Jesus, Herod revamps this temple. He gives it a facelift. He fixes it. They upgrade it. They smooth out Mount Moriah, where Temple Mount is, and they enlarge it. He, uh, Herod, in, in that time, just before Jesus, he invented the earth mover with those big tires. And where you stand next to him, you're like this tall. And they moved the top of Mount Moriah. They smoothed it out. And so they, and they rebuilt the temple. And so that's the, the second temple. We call it Herod's temple. And the third temple is yet future. That's the one we're going to see in Revelation for the, the two witnesses will stand in front of that the Antichrist will enter and proclaim himself to be God. We call that Satan's temple. Because that's not God's temple. There'll, there'll be no, you know, they may have a holy of holies, but God's presence won't be in it. And Satan ultimately will, will run and own that temple for the last three and a half years. He'll desecrate it. He'll build it. Everything. So it's, it's not really God's temple. I mean, God's people who he loves and he's going to save, they are they respect it, but it's ultimately it's, it's the Antichrist temple, the third temple that, that's yet future. And in verse 13 it says, So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So like half of them were crying and half of them were screaming for joy and they couldn't tell which was which. They're like, it was so loud, but anyways. So some time passes. I think it's 15 years. Um, no, no, not three and four. Between four and five. There's a time pass here, but four and five, there's, there's another gap um, where they begin. Chapter four. So good things are happening, right? They're offering offerings. They've restored the burnt offerings. They're celebrating Jewish feasts, Passovers, and different things, Feast of Tabernacles, and, and spiritual progress is being made. So what comes with spiritual progress? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, that Lord there, you notice that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in your Bibles, that's the Tetragrammaton, that's the YHVH, the name of God. The Jews didn't want to mispronounce the name of God, so they left the vowels out, and they only gave us the consonants. That's why many say Jehovah. The problem with Jehovah um, is that there's no J sound in Hebrew. Um, and so Yahweh is kind of commonly what, what we call the name of God. It's the name that God gave to Moses. I am that I am. Um, the, the name there, the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 2 says, And they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the houses, and they said to him, Let us build with you. We seek your God. We're Christians. Let us serve with you. Let us play on your worship teams and help you build. 
as you do, and days of, someone help me out there, Esarhaddon, oh, Esarhaddon, 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 king of Assyria, who brought us here. So this, I'll just give you a spoiler alert really quick. This here is the um, Samaritans who were there. The Samaritans show up, and, and they want to help rebuild. They say, we're Christians, we serve your God. Now, remember Jesus in John chapter 4? Phenomenal story because that, that starts in verse 4 of, of John where Jesus was traveling from one place to another. And then there's a verse in verse 4 and it says, Jesus must, in King James Version, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And the reason why Jesus must needs, whenever you see the term must with Jesus or with something we're supposed to do, pay attention in your Bible. Jesus said you must be born again. So it says he must needs go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. There was a woman at the well that he was going to meet there. You remember that phenomenal story? And this woman is a Samaritan woman, and Jesus meets her, and she's like, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you're not a prophet. Yeah, I'm a Samaritan woman. And Jesus is like, I know who you are. He said, go get your husband. He said, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know, you had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And then, and then, and then she says, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. And, and she said, well, our fathers say to worship on this mountain, but you Jews say to worship on that mountain. Which is it? And Jesus went on, and he said, those that worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, th- so this, this woman, this Samaritan woman, was, was a group of the ten northern tribes. You ever heard the term the lost ten tribes? I usually bag on that and make fun of that because they're not lost. God didn't lose anybody. But where the idea comes from is the ten northern tribes of Israel, when they went into captivity, just like our, our, our study, the southern two tribes of Judah went into captivity into Babylon, the ten northern were into captivity of Assyria. Well, the Assyrians and the Babylonians handled these captivities very differently. The, Assy- the Babylonians, actually, as cruel as they were and as hard as it was in the beginning, they, they were actually much more friendly. They let the Jews live um, in Babylon and build houses and keep culture and keep religion and, and assimilate into the, the Babylonian culture that way. But the Assyrians didn't do that with the northern ten tribes. That's why they're called lost. Now, we know they're not lost. That's not a correct biblical theology at all. There's no lost tribes. But the the Assyrians, they came in and they they sent people from Assyria to Israel and, and they, they forced the Jews to, to marry them and, and take their wives and their husbands and they had um, children and the offspring were half-breed. They were half Assyrian, half Jews. They were called Samaritans. Now the Jews are very, um, I don't like using the word racist for this term, but that's kind of what it is. They're very um, racist in, in some respects and um, and so they, they didn't receive the Samaritans as real Jews. And what happened was, in, in, in the northern ten tribes with the Samaritans, they didn't have access to um, Judah and the temple in Jerusalem. So rather than, than follow God according to the prescribed way that God told them they were supposed to worship, they started making up their own prescriptions. And they, and they built on Mount Gerizim a place of worship that was supposed to replicate the Temple Mount, had the Holy of Holies. And, oh, I think I got some pictures of the Samaritans, um, modern day. Time of Jesus, the Samaritans that Jesus met in John chapter 4, about 200,000 Samaritans um, there in Israel. They're a very small number today. They still exist in Israel, about 2,000, I think, um, or less, maybe even less now. Um, this was, I don't know what year, but this is a, in Mount Gerizim. It's in the area of Samaria. So if you look at a map of Israel, you can find an ancient map. You can find the area called Samaria. This is where um, Mount Gerizim is. And so this is a picture. And then there's one more picture. This is an actual picture. That was an actual picture too, but more modern. This picture was taken in 1920. And this is the um, Samaritan high priest 
And you see there he's got a, a, a Torah there. Um, they believe in the first five books of Moses, but not the rest of the Old Testament. So they only believe in the Torah. They celebrate three of the major Jewish feasts, um, but not all seven. And um, they're, they're, again, they're, they're half-breeds, very inbred because they want to keep their own culture. They, um, there's problems, physical problems with the Samaritans today because of the inbreeding and the, and the tribal um, ideas of staying together. And so they're there. So this is the group that shows up here, these Samaritans. And because they had taken on um, um, Assyrian culture and they intermingled and they, they didn't follow. Now, you, you, part of me is like, well, why would, why would this happen to them? Or why would God be so upset? Like they didn't have an option. They, they were up in the north. They didn't have access. They couldn't go to the temple. So they made their own temple and they put it in the wrong place. And, you know, but you know what? If God had, if, if they had faith and they believed in God and they did it the way that he told them, he would have opened doors for them to be able to worship him. He wasn't excluding them. But, but they stepped out and they started doing things in a strange way and they made excuses. Like you, you don't have excuses in your life because of circumstance or situation. Like God has prescribed a way that he's to be worshiped and that's all that he'll accept. And so um, the Samaritans, they come and they say, hey, we're there. You know anybody that, that says, well, I'm a Christian that you've talked to that's like living with his girlfriend or he's stoned when he, when he says it? Yeah. Or tells you this amazing story of like, how they did ministry and all this stuff was happening and people were going to get saved. And, and then at the end of it, he says, but we were all crying on acid when it happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyways, just be careful, right? Like, I, I, I honestly am, you know, they, they hijack our terms. That's just what happens to us as Christ followers. They hi- that's okay. They can have them, you know. They now have the rainbow and a hundred other things, you know. And the term Christian is next, you know. And, and because it's just out there, you know. I mean, I grew up as a kid. And not, not any, no religion in my family really that I knew of anywhere, you know. And, and if my friends asked me, you know, I growing up in L.A., I was like, well, I'm not Catholic, and I guess that makes me Christian. So I'm Christian. I grew up telling people I was Christian. You know, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know God. I knew nothing about religion. I've never been to church. Um, and so, you know, when someone says that term, you know, sometimes it needs a definition. Before you just, you know, become best buds with somebody because they're a Christian, might find out what that means and, and have to define it and who God is has to be defined. I, I, I find myself more using the term Christ follower instead of Christian these days, but it's probably the same thing. Bible only folks. That's what, that's what one of the one of the one of my friends here calls our church. And I like it. I think it's a compliment, you know. She said, uh, she said, Yeah, I had a neighbor move on and I invited him to our ward and they didn't want to come. They were Bible-only folks. So I told them about you guys. You guys are Bible-only folks. And I was like, yeah, sweet. You invited them, I invited them to your church. So I was like, okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, that's us, Bible-only folks. We don't need the Quran or anything else. We don't need Egyptian hieroglyphics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's do, let's just stop. We'll stop after five. So it says, verse four, it says, can I do three? Yeah. Shalom, Bill, Lord of Israel, King Cyrus. Um, so verse 3 says, But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, house of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. So they, they didn't have mercy on them. And they know, because it was a trick from the beginning. You'll see they're going to show their true colors. But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people 
of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, and they troubled them in building, and they hired lawyers against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so we'll stop there for tonight. But they, they lawyered up right away, which was kind of the custom of what they did. And they went and they started trying to fight conjunctions and different things to get them to stop the building project. But, you know, they're two colors, and their real heart sh- shows. Because they, they first tried to attack from within. They said, let us help you, so they could thwart the plan from the inside. And then when they, when they, they were wise to it and they didn't let them, and immediately they started um, attacking them from the outside, hiring lawyers, doing other things. I get people call the church every once in a while and ask, you know, and, and there's certain people that just go through the phone book and call it a church and ask for money. And I try to discern it, you know, and I try to let the Holy Spirit lead me when we're supposed to help and when we're not. And every, you know, time to time I'll have to tell somebody, I'm sorry, I don't think we can help you with that. And I, I don't, can't do that. And then um, they start cussing me out. I love it. Every time I'm like, yes, right decision. Have a nice day. Uh, let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We praise you, God. We, we lift your name on high, Lord, and we just we just love you, Lord. We love studying your word, God. It's so deep, Lord. 2,000, 2,500 years ago, these, these words were written on a page, and here we are studying them today with power, with value. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the providence of God, for your, your word, that not one jot or tittle will ever fail, Lord, for the everlasting, eternal word of God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus died on a cross and rose again, that we may know Jesus more. We pray, Father, for intimacy with you and deeper intimacy with you in our walk, in our life. We pray for opportunities, Lord, and even as Jesus must needs go through Samaria, that you would use us to have a passion and a burden to share the gospel, to be used by you, Lord, behind the scenes, wherever you call us, Lord, to be faithful in serving you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus.